welcome to our services this morning. George, thank you for coming. I asked George which seat he went up here, and he said he didn't care. And so I stepped down, looked up here, and remembered what Jesus said. He separated the goats from the sheep. And so I took the right side, let George take the left side. So uh, anyway, uh, but George, thank you so much for being here today and for sharing this time with us. Uh, George and I, along with his beautiful wife, Emma, should we have sex service today? We got together last fall. George had been filling in some for Blake, and uh, he came over to the office, and we ended up talking for, I guess, two hours. I mean, George, it went just uh, kind of way too long, but it was so good. And during that conversation, I realized very quickly how much George and I had in common. And, uh, and so as we begin to think about uh, the new year, in particular, about trying to talk about how we can do a better job in the church in bringing people from all backgrounds, all races together. And so I thought, well, what a better time on the day before Martin Luther King holiday, a holiday that Ronald Reagan uh, put into effect, wow, now almost 40 years ago, hard to believe that. Uh, but uh, I thought, man, it would be good if I could just sit down with George and us talk a little bit about our own experiences and then let George challenge us a little bit about some things that we could do from his perspective that would help. It's an individual perspective. He's not speaking for everyone who is black anymore than I'm speaking for everyone that's white. That's one thing we want to say very clearly. But uh, George and I are the same age, born in the same month in the same year. Raised in very different parts of the country. He was raised in New York City. I was raised in the great metropolitan city of Ripley, Mississippi. So, very different background. But our experiences are the same. You know, if I talk about Beaver Cleaver, George, you know who I'm talking about. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, he can throw out things. And, I, and in fact, George, I was thinking today, you may not remember this. Do you remember the uh, little... Uh, Two balls on the string called clackers that were popular back when we were like the fifth or sixth grade. Yes, I almost killed myself. Yes, so did so many other people, which is why they're outlawed now. Uh, but there was a, a little, uh, some of y'all remember those, uh, the two glass balls originally on a string that you would bang together, and yeah, you'd break arms and all kinds of windows and everything else, and they finally outlawed them. We remember those things. Uh, George and I both grew up in conservative churches of Christ, he in New York, me in Mississippi. Uh, we both went to Christian colleges. We both wanted to go into ministry. Uh, we, we both uh, married quite young. June and I got married a little bit younger than he and Pamela, but that's because he and Pamela dated a lot longer. It took Pamela a while to decide whether or not she wanted to marry him. And so, uh, but, but we experienced a lot of the same experiences. As we were talking, we would just laugh and laugh about those things. So, George, if you would, uh, just go back and tell us a little bit about your history. Where you were born, what it was like, where you went to school, all that kind of stuff. Sure. I was born in Charlotte, North Carolina. And um, my father uh, and mother decided that they wanted to go to New York. Well, my father decided to go to New York. And so... We went to New York, and we, we were raised from about five to the time I went to college in New York City. Uh, unfortunately, um, pretty much uh, almost all of that time was spent uh, without 
my father uh, in New York. Um, so my mother raised four boys in the city by herself. Still kind of upset about that. <laughs> but that's, that was the situation. We grew up in New York City. I went to uh, Southwestern Christian College. Um, once I graduated from uh, the uh, Juilliard School of uh, Music and Art in New York. And then I went to Southwestern Christian College. After Southwestern Christian College, I went to Lubbock, Texas, uh, because that's where all New Yorkers go. Uh, <laughs> I went to Lubbock. Christian college, and after I loved Christian college, uh, I had the, 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 the privilege of going out to where fruits and nuts are in California. And I worked out there with church until, uh, until I met up with Acapella. And that's when I went to Paris, Tennessee, and started traveling around the country with Acapella uh, after about four years in California. So that's how you got to say Yes. I'm glad you did. Yes. I'm glad you did. Uh, you and I grew up in very different cultures, to say the least. Uh, we both grew up when the civil rights movement was going on. Uh, I remember very distinctively uh, when Martin Luther King was assassinated. Uh, you and I were then around second, third grade. So we were really young. So uh, I'm not remembering it well because I was caught up in the civil rights movement, but that's not the case at all. I was more about playing in the backyard riding bicycles than I was about what was going on in the world. Uh, what's your memories of uh, that, those times? I mean, do you remember it much at all? Well, you know, um, if I told you I remember it very well, I'd be lying because I was in the same boat. I was about the same age you were. We were uh, um, playing and having a good time. I just remember my mom and sitting down looking at the, uh, the, the television and crying. And uh, the, the only difference I had was an experience I had in New York in getting involved in civil rights. Um, I was very, very young and very stupid. So when I tell you this, young people, please do not do it because you can hurt yourself. I thought this would be a great opportunity. There was a, a march going on. And it was a march I had no idea about what it was about. I just knew it was a march. And I was thinking, okay, I'm going to join the struggle and get out there. Only after a terrible situation, uh, someone decided to throw a rock and hit the police officer. And all hell broke loose. And there were people running like crazy being run over, and I remember running through an alley, only to find out later that this was a Black Panther march. I had no idea who the Black Panthers were, didn't, wasn't, you know, too young to even have, and that's the way a lot of our situations are that we get caught up in. No, no idea as to who they were, but they were, it was some kind of civil rights march against the police department, and some idiot decided he wanted to throw a rock and hit a police officer and yeah so that's that's been my uh <laughs> involvement in civil rights yeah <laughs> you know i the only remembrance i have of when martin luther king you know is april 4th uh, 1968 is that i remember my mother same situation being afraid mm. uh we lived near where the majority of african-americans lived in ripley 
and I remember my mother turning to my dad and saying, you don't think they'll march and burn our house down. Mm. And so my mom had fear of that. My dad didn't. My dad said, no, nothing like that's going to happen. And it didn't. It was very peaceful. But, but you and I grew up. Now, the difference between me and you, though, is quite different. When you told me that, I was quite surprised. In Ripley, Mississippi, in the late 60s, it was black and white. That was the big differences. New York was quite different. How was different, how was segregation different? And I'm using that word specifically. It's not racism, it's segregation. How was segregation different in New York City? And I think it's this way still today. Um, the difference is, even though we had lots of different cultures, everybody lived in their own uh, compartment. Like, for example, I lived in, uh, in the Bronx, uh, but in the Bronx, there were your African-American neighborhoods, your Spanish neighborhoods, and then your Italian neighborhoods, your, your Jewish neighborhoods, and your Polish neighborhoods. And we all knew where the uh, uh, boundary lines were. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, I mean, on one end of the spectrum, people in the north would you know, say to the, to the people in the South that, oh, yeah, we're, we're liberated, we're... Uh, but in essence, they were just as segregated because we all went to our own corners. And um, when I wanted to see friends that I had in, uh, uh, that were white, Italian friends, I went to Little Italy. And, uh, you know, I took my life in my hands, and they took theirs in their hands if they wanted to come see me in, in, uh, in the Bronx, in the South Bronx. Yeah, very, very different. Uh, well, you and I watched the end of what I would call overt racism. I mean, no more segregation of schools. Uh, you never experienced that. I did up through about the fourth grade. Uh, but you and I saw the end of, you know, colored water fountains, white water fountains, you know, riding in different parts of the bus. All that was gone by the time you and I got on up in high school and, and, and college. Uh, but what, what sometimes people describe as systemic racism, which is racism that is not overt, it's beneath the surface, uh, it, it continues to exist, and I suspect always will exist. You know, one of the things I tell people is that I hope I'm not racist. I know I'm prejudiced. And by that, all I simply mean is, is that I tend to prejudge people. Mm -hmm. We all do. Everybody does that. And so the key, I think, to all of this is learning how not to prejudge people. Let me ask you for a quick illustration, and then I want to move, let you just kind of talk to us for a few moments. You experienced when you went to Lubbock. You had training in music. You loved to sing. Share with the church, though, what happened when you got to Lubbock. Well, I, uh, as you know, a lot of my singing kind of veers away from the, the, uh, the conventional, you know. I, I, I kind of sing between and around the notes. And I, I love in do, doing that. But in doing that, sometimes uh, uh, people presume that you can't sing any other kind of way. And uh, so I, I tried out for um, the a cappella choir. And I didn't make it. And uh, so I had a very good friend of mine and who knew that I had been singing 
quite a bit. He asked this, the, uh, the, uh, the, the choir director um, at that time, why didn't this young man get into the choir? And he said, well, he doesn't really know how to read music. What he didn't know was I had spent at least three years in classical training in New York City, singing opera and all the other arias and uh, at music and art. But because I was kind of animated and singing uh, other kind of styles, he just presumed, and it, it didn't stop there. I tried out for Master Follies. I tried out for Best Friends. If any of you know any of these kind of uh, uh, groups that were connected with Christian colleges, I couldn't make it in any of them. Uh, and I just figured, I just said to myself, well, maybe God wants me to focus more on my ministry because I was uh, studying as a Bible major. And that's what I did. But um, that same, after I graduated a year later, that very same uh, choir director and the other directors of the musicians there paid to come see me at the, uh, at the Civic Center. So I figured, that, that's good enough. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what I mean by prejudging, by being, you know, having prejudice, is that we tend to hear someone or see someone and just judge them without getting to know them. And so that comes to what I want you to share with us today. What are some things we can do that will prevent us from prejudging, that will prevent us from becoming people who, you know, try to build walls and still building bridges? And so you had some just really practical ideas, and boy, they're just real for all of us. And it's not just between races, it's between all of us. So share with us some of those ideas, and I think you've got some PowerPoint to go with it. Okay, um, now, I, I need you to know that as far as technology is concerned... The green button. Yeah, I, I have the, um, what is it called, the, the, the Murphy's Law of Technology. If it can go wrong, it usually does with me, so just bear with me. Um, like I was supposed to wear that, that um, uh, microphone, the headphone mic, I love those but I broke it. I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't break it, but the, the little part, the little dilly, it, it came off and I couldn't. So I'm sorry, brother. I'm really sorry. <laughs> okay. So basically I've got three things to say. I, I, I believe, let me start it by saying this. We are living in some unprecedented times. Our situation, um, our, um, Our situations uh, that we're experiencing right now, I would say, and I'm sure you would too, that this is unprecedented. Unprecedented times lead to some unprecedented situations, the kinds of situations you all have been watching on the news and experiencing in your neighborhoods, experiencing on your jobs, um, the, the, the hunger and the, the, the illness that we're, we're dealing with. And when all those kind of things come, it, it creates a perfect storm. And I really believe it leads us to need to have some unprecedented conversations. So, my quandary is, what in the world can you and I say 
to our brothers and sisters, to help us to move beyond hatred, anger, despair, and apathy. I, first of all, believe that the first thing that needs to happen is you got to care. I do. I think unless you care, um, unless it matters enough to you, you don't even have those conversations. And can I say, will you guys allow me to say thank you for allowing us to have this conversation? Now, you know, I didn't even ask you that. I told someone else, I said, you know, uh, uh, Les uh, Chapman and I are going to have a conversation. (laughs) And the only thing they kept saying is, Does his leaders know? (laughs) Does his church know? Are they going to allow that? You know what that says to me? That says that's a scary, you know, that's, that's a scary time that we live in, that we're too afraid to talk about some things like this. So I want to, first of all, congratulate you because, honestly, this is not a conversation that a lot of churches are having. But I believe it's necessary. Who told me that this morning? It was John Micah said, um, one of his teachers told him, the most important thing is to understand that conversation matters. And so thank you for, for moving forward and allowing us to say and to talk about what we think matters. I think the first thing that has to happen is you got to care. What, what do you mean by care? Well, kind of walk us through that. Um, caring to me consists of about four things. Compassion, awareness, revision, or the ability to change and revise how you see the world, and engagement. I'm going to try to, so now, he doesn't know this because I didn't tell him this, but he is my hero. I absolutely love his adherence and knowledge of the Bible. When I come and I'm singing, I'm literally sitting there enjoying a preacher that knows the word so well. Now, I don't know about you all, but that's how churches of Christ have been known throughout history. We often use the Bible to clobber one another with, (laughs) but you cannot deny that having an awareness of the word is incredibly important. So I'd like you to read for us the first point, compassion. Um, Matthew 9, 9, 35 and 36. Oh, good. I got somebody else. Who, did you, who, who changed that? That's beautiful. Beautiful. Okay. Actually, you go ahead. I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you do that because it just frightens me to, to mess up something. But Matthew 9, 35 and 36 is an interesting passage. You want to read it? Yeah, let me read it here. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I believe that compassion is so important because it lets people know something moves you. It doesn't matter how, how well you, you present your church to the world. There's a statement that says, 
people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I believe that from the bottom of my heart. And I think that's why Jesus was so effective, because he didn't only care for people or have compassion for people. You could see it. Yeah. Can you think of any other kind of situations where Jesus, his, his, his demeanor was visibly changed as a result of how he felt for people? Well, I, I, I just think in Matthew chapter 8, the very first story after the Sermon on the Mount is a leper coming up to Jesus and says, if you want to, you can make me clean. And Jesus does what no one would do. He touches him. Yes. Yes, I love it. Him. Now, see, anybody else I couldn't do this with because I didn't, they'd be going like, well, you didn't tell me what passage you were going to need me to. But that's so important. We've got to be willing to reach out and touch people in spite of where they are. And then we've got to move beyond our compassion to be aware of where people are. John, John chapter 1, verse 14. I love the way the message uh, says that. It's just a beautiful, beautiful rendition of it. It says, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. I guess if there's something I'd like to say is that we've got to get close enough to people. You talked about the one uh, where the leper comes. I mean, can you think of any situations in your life where people, you keep them at a distance? There's plenty of them. But we've got to get close enough to people to understand who they are, where they're coming from, and why they react the way they react. Our churches are a perfect example of how we have successfully figured out how to keep people that are uncomfortable, that are different than us, at a distance. I mean, now look. Look at our churches. Your church is no different than most churches right now. They're usually comprised of most people that, number one, look like us, talk like us, act like us, and know the program. And you, we all know those individuals that come in amongst us that are not like us. So we got to get close enough to people. And then we got to do more than that. I love Acts because the story of Acts chapter 10 I believe is probably one of the best situations that tells us about revision or about re-examining our situation. I, I understand that you guys have been studying about uh, Acts chapter 10 and, and yeah. moving from one state to another. Peter is a perfect example for all of us. I know he is for me because... He, he is constantly dealing with foot-mouth disease. He says one thing, but then he does something completely different. But I like Acts chapter 10 because as he's up trying to be religious, godly, having a prayer and meditation on top of the roof, God gives him one of the best sermons you will ever read about. And I love it. I love Acts chapter 10 because 
Well, I think the first concept that you might look at this and think is that God is really uh, sharing his grace with the Gentiles. When you read Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 36, you're thinking maybe this is a story about God sharing grace and mercy with the Gentiles. But I would dare to say that it's more than that. I really believe it's about Peter's struggle to change and to see the world different. You remember when he's up on the roof and, and he has that, uh, that vision and he has to have it happen to him three times? God says, okay, Peter, arise, kill him. You're hungry? Go downstairs, kill and eat. You see all these wonderful animals that I've just, go down and kill some and eat them. And what does he say? Ah, uh, no, Lord. Nothing unclean is never going to enter my mouth. Now notice God is going from, I just showed you about eating, and then he tells him, no, I said kill and eat. Don't call anything that I've made clean, don't call it unclean. And somehow Peter has to finally get the message that he is talking about people. Now, I don't know about you, but Peter's situation, I, you know, when you read that story, do you really realize how difficult a situation he's in? He's in a Jewish home, right? And he gets these non-believing Gentiles that come to the house. Everybody knows this doesn't happen. Okay, let me, let me make this a little more plain so we can move on, so you can understand what I'm talking about. You live in a nice, quiet, white, clean neighborhood, suburban area. It's, you know, you can, you can hear children play. You can see the stars at night. Everything is beautiful. And all of a sudden, the Crips, the Bloods, The, I don't even know a Mexican group uh, come to your home. They knock on the door. They have tattoos all over them. They say, we're looking for you. You're like, uh, we've been told that you're the one that we need to talk to. Do you know what kind of position Peter is in to try to change everything that he knew about this? And you know what he does? The first thing he does is invite them in. I don't know. You know, I'm thinking Peter's going, come on in, get out, get out. Don't let nobody know you're in this. <laughs> but he does. He invites them in. And he says, can, I tell, can you tell me why you're wanting me to come? You know, what's this about? And they tell him the whole story. But he literally has to change his practices, his presuppositions, and his mental model. I think it takes um, engagement. The Bible says in John chapter 4 that uh, Jesus, he was going back to Jerusalem, but he had to go through Samaria. Now, I love that particular passage because you don't really realize why in the world he had to go through Samaria. As a matter of fact, if you ask the Jews, they would say, Jesus, that's wrong. Because we, we don't go through Samaria. If I, can, if I can make this a little more practical, Samaria is, or should, rep, let, Galilee represents home. Galilee represents comfort. Galilee represents 
where everybody is on the same page. We're all together. It's a place of comfort. Samaria, on the other hand, represents unfamiliarity, insecurity, and discomfort. Everybody in here knows a Samaria. Everybody knows a Samaritan situation. I'm not just talking about going in the, in the hood. That's not the only place Samaria exists. And he says, I have to go through Samaria. I want to say to each and every one of you, God has a Samaria for all of us. Yeah. He does. He's got a Samaria for all of us. And, and the reason why is because when we stop in Samaria, we finally recognize and come to grips with not only the differences that exist amongst us with other people, but we find out some things about ourselves. And so God has a Samaria for each of us. You know, you know, George, mine was going into the prison systems. And I have oftentimes said that I have learned far more from the inmates than I have ever shared with them. And, but, but I would have never learned that, like you said, if I hadn't gone into my Samaria. So our time's going to run out here. So you got two, two more ideas. Okay, good. I told them to keep me on track. All right, now, so that's engage with people. And then the last one, or the last two, courage. It takes courage. It really does. It takes courage to get beyond our fears. I love Nelson Mandela's uh, uh, quote. He says, I learned that courage is not the absence of fear, but it's triumphing over it. Yeah. So the man that's the... Uh, the brave one is not the person that doesn't have fear, but it's the person who learns to conquer and triumph over that fear. Joshua 1, 6 through 9, I love this particular passage for various reasons. Number one, he mentions be, uh, be strong and courageous and do not be afraid. Three times. One, because you're a leader. Two, remember these things. Keep it before you. Make sure you keep this in mind because God is going to help you to be successful. And number three, he says, because the Lord is going to be with you wherever you go. The bottom line is this. In, in Numbers chapter 13 is the greatest story I've ever seen. It's when he sends the, the spies out and they meet the, uh, the Anakites, the giants. Now, I know this, for a lot of people, they look at it as a children's story, but I believe it's so apropos. It's not a children's story. Can you imagine running into a group of people that are scary looking? They're giants. And I would dare say that the problems we are experiencing today are ginormous. And yet, God never gives a reward without challenging without challenging us in some way of our faithfulness and obedience. And then lastly, it takes commitment. If there's any story in the Bible that speaks the loudest about commitment, it is the story of Ruth. Think about what Ruth committed herself to. Yeah. She committed herself to God, to a person, 
and to a country and a place that were not her own. The truth is, the gospel, the good news of the cross, requires that kind of commitment. Commitment to God, to people, and to understanding things that are not your own, ways that are not your own, in order to bring about a change in people's lives. So I got to say to you today this. Compassion or caring, courage, and commitment are things that I believe make a difference in moving us from one place to another, from a place of hatred, despair, and apathy to love, awareness, and change. George, thank you so very much. Thanks for coming. Again, George will be here at the 11 o'clock hour again. And uh, one of the things George said as we were planning this, he said, Les, I just want us to be casual. And, and we did not practice. Uh, and so when he said to me, hey, you know, would you read that text? I was thinking, boy, I hope I can find that text fast enough. And so, but, uh, but George, thank you so much. And I especially appreciate the last uh, reference to Ruth. You know, you put that text up there. That's a very special text to me because that was June's uh, wedding vow to me. And uh, what? that was Yale's wedding vow too? All right, uh, that's another one. Wow, wow. That's exactly our wedding vow. Well, uh, it wasn't mine to June, but it was June to me, and I didn't know she was going to say it. And I almost stopped her because I thought she was off, uh, off the uh, uh, agenda there. But, you know, in so many ways, marriage uh, is like this. You know, we're going, when you get married, you're going into territory you've never been in. You're going into, you're going into Samarias, you know, some Samarias. And yet, uh, you and I have both, you know, learned how to maneuver and, and learned how to love our wives. And through that, uh, hopefully how to learn other people better. And so I thank you for, for throwing that up there. And I didn't know that was your vet wedding vow. Wait till I see Pamela and tell her another thing that we have in common. But again, thank you so much for coming. Thank you all for being here today. You know, the gospel is about overcoming barriers. That's what the gospel is all about. And, and that's what we want to continue to do, go into our Samarias with the good news of Jesus Christ and change the world as the gospel changes us as well. It begins here. So, George, thank you so much. Thank you for your, your ministry. Thank you for your service in the kingdom of God and for sharing with us today. Uh, Blake, do we have one last song? We don't have one last song. Let's everyone please bow as we dismiss in prayer. Our Father, thank you so much. Thank you for blessing us today. And, Father, as our world pauses, as our nation pauses tomorrow to remember Martin Luther King, Jr., Father, help us to be reminded that the work of spreading what it's like to be Christian toward one another continues. Uh, racial justice, Father, overcoming prejudice, learning like Peter to, to follow the Lord's guidance is an ongoing project in every person's life. It always has been and it will be until you come back. Oh, Father, teach us. Teach us how to be a people who, who care, Father. 
who, who are people who have this wonderful courage to step out. And Father, help us to have the commitment to follow you wherever you take us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.